Hello, and welcome to Season 2 of The Outer Twilight. Good day, and welcome to The Outer Twilight Podcast. I am Michael, and I am joined by Andrew. How are you doing today, Andrew? Good, man. It's good to be back. It's been a long time coming, so I'm glad that we're back at it. Yeah. Yeah, and we are back at it, and this is the start of Season 2, we're calling it, because, mm-hmm. you know, season should always start in November. Um, <laughs> That's when all the good shows start. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> we wanted to get sweeps out of the way, you know, and uh, get everything set for the uh, for the new season, so... We're going to start this season a little bit. Well, this season is going to be a lot different than what we did last year. Um, we're going to we've spent some time. We're looking at what works, what we enjoyed, um, and we want to build on that. But we also we learned a lot. Um, I think I learned a lot about just trying to talk and be clear and and <laughs> having that conversation on a topic um i know you said you've learned a lot about <laughs> the editing and all that aspects and and yeah, i think we, well i mean it's yeah yeah we want to take those things and i guess take that next step and yep. so we're going to start with a series of conversations two conversations to be more specific where we're going to talk about ourselves ourselves um something we didn't do specifically uh last season but this season we want to start with getting to not getting to we know each other quite well uh letting you get to know us a bit better and kind of why we do this so um Mm -hmm. so you ready andrew because we're gonna do you first (laughs) (laughs) there has got to be a better way to phrase that phrasing (laughs) But yeah, yeah, <laughs> yep. Okay. Yeah, no, I'm good to go. Let's let's do this. So I guess probably the best place to start is at the beginning. And so, so a lot of what we talked about last season was creativity and ideas and where yeah. they come from and how to work with them. And is there a point for you? And I've wondered this, like where you kind of really realize that creativity was or, or realize that what creativity was what fuels my creativity i guess is always story ideas and and for me the thing that i the the common ground that i remember from when i was a kid in almost every aspect of my life is trying to figure out how things work um so even when i think about what sparked my creativity from when I was young, my dad was a bit of a tech geek. And so he had a good stereo. We always had like a nice TV with like good equipment. And, um, you know, when it was a bit, when you finally could rent movies at home, I guess I'm giving away a little bit of how old I am, but you know, when you could get movies at home, uh, in the early eighties, even in some of the earlier formats, you know, my dad did that. And so I was able to, you know, see a lot of movies, probably more than a lot of my friends, almost from the get go, Um, and being an eighties kid, I, I watched a lot of TV and a lot of movies and I got to know, you know, storytelling patterns. I figured out what I liked, what I didn't like. Um, you know, I, I was a kid that 
I, I was really social. I had some good friends that I spent every time, every day with, but you know, on Saturday mornings, like I'd watch cartoons, but then I'd also throw on PBS and watch like cooking shows and stuff like that, or British comedy marathons, um, pretty much anything creatively I could get my hands on. Um, and then on top of that, like with the toys that I had, like transformers, for example, I, it wasn't enough to just have the toy and be able to transform it. I went into my dad's toolbox, got my, got his screwdrivers out, took the transformers apart so that I could figure out how they actually went together. Hmm. And then, and then would put them back together again, you know, and I meticulously made sure that I, you know, the order of, uh, of how I took it apart and then put it back together so that I knew the thing inside and out. Um, and then was actually then able to like, if one of my friends transformers broke, I could be like, oh, I could fix that for you, you know, and, and actually figure out how to do that. Um, and so I've, I've always liked doing those kinds of things. And so then for creativity, for me, my creativity, my storytelling often comes from pulling apart known story tropes, known story ideas. I have seen so many stories over the years that I can recognize, you know, what's like what, you know, like it's the the, the common one uh, that we hear we've heard about before is, you know, Die Hard was huge. And then so you had Die Hard on a train, you had Die Hard on a boat, you had Die Hard, you know, like it was. And so I'd be able to say like, oh, this is just like this movie, but in this setting um, or these characters remind me of this. Uh, I was watching Ghostbusters with my family yesterday because Halloween's coming up. And uh, and I was kind of thinking like there's kind of a bit of parallel like between the Ghostbusters and the Ninja Turtles a little bit because my son likes the Ninja Turtles. Right. So it's it's just things like that, that that's how my mind tends to work is finding you know, the tropes and comparing uh, what's different, what's the same. And then when I write my stories, I want to write something that's a riff on those things, finding where the holes are and then filling them in. So when I was a kid, a lot of it was just uh, the creativity came out, not so much in writing, but spending time with my best friend, Corey, um, we did a lot of walking back and forth to each other's houses. And so we would kind of like, Oh, what if this happened? And it may be a fictional character, maybe a real character, maybe a real person. Um, and we'd say, we'd sort of tell each other stories as we were walking um, and use our imaginations that way. And it, for us, it was very organic. It's not like that's what we tried to do. That's just what became a big part of our friendship is kind of these little storytelling sessions. Um, yeah, so that's what I remember of my creativity um, when I was young and where the spark of it came from. Um, yeah. Well, I think you, you use the term, you know, dating myself, and uh, but you also referred yourself, <laughs> referred to yourself as a kid of the 80s. And um, yeah. And I think that for, and, you know, we're the same age, you know, we have a lot of the same yep. cultural touchstones. And and I think that that's important because when we're defining um, kind of like what we're really immersed in is, you know, kind of this fandom, not necessarily from right in the thick of it, but kind of this from the peripheral and looking at a lot of different fandoms and stuff like that. And, and I think that's something that we're going to touch on this season is the relationship that people have with the media that they enjoy or don't enjoy, whatever the case may be. Um, but you know, when you look at, you know, Jaws, 
you know, in the late seventies being kind of that, that first summer blockbuster and then star Wars being you know, really that the first cultural phenomenon that, you know, um, that was, that was the world that we were kids into. And I know for you, that probably was pretty key to your development. So my question is, was there like an earliest moment where something really profoundly affected you where you maybe didn't have the thought right then, but you know, where you became a fan? Uh, Howie and Bill were two guys in my grade five class that really loved comic books. Um, and they were too, like they, they came into the class and they were drawing every lunch hour. Like they were drawing and they were, I mean, for grade five guys, they were, they were decent. Right. And I was a bit of, you know, my dad's an artist, he paints paintings and stuff. And so I was pretty good at doodling. I was never, you know, seriously into drawing, but the stuff that they were drawing was things like Wolverine, of course, cause Wolverine's always popular. Hulk was popular. So that, you know, they were drawing these guys and I really had only passing familiarity because at that point, the Marvel and DC were only available in comic books. There wasn't regular shows of either of those universes. And so I was intrigued when they brought comics to school to draw base their drawings off of. And so I was like, I got to, I got to read these. These are cool. This is really neat, you know? And so that was a big turning point for me. So then I was allowed to collect. I occasionally bought separate issues. My first issue was secret wars. Number 10 with doom on the cover, uh, which is kind of a fun uh, little bit of correlation between the two of us in the sense that I know you're a big Dr. Doom uh, fan. And, and for me, that was my first book was Dr. Doom on the cover, looking all bloodied and gross, which was so great for, you know, uh, what would I have been then? I would have been like 10. Right. So like <laughs> seeing this bloodied guy in the covers, like that guy's bleeding. That's cool. But, um, I collected Iron Man, uh, right when, just before armor wars started, uh, which was a great time to jump onto Iron Man. Cause it, you know, and I loved Iron Man. I collected the transformers Marvel series, uh, which was cool. Cause there was interaction with like Spider-Man. Um, and it, not much, but there was enough interaction with Marvel characters that I thought it was cool that there was like a shared universe. And then I collected alpha flight, which was the Canadian superhero team. Um, so every month I was buying three titles. Um, I saw the other ones on the shelf, you know, uh, my buddy collected GI Joe. So I always read GI Joe at his house. He had Sergeant rock. He had like a lot of war comics. And so that introduction to comics was when I remember my imagination really taking off and being like, wow, this is amazing. Um, and just loving the stories, loving the notion of, of heroes. Um, and then as far as like film and television, uh, the one film that I remember really profoundly affecting me was ET. I mean, so that was 82. So I was still pretty young in 82. Uh, and I remember seeing it in the theater and just being blown away by the emotional storytelling. I mean, it's Steven Spielberg, who's, I mean, he's no slouch, obviously, <laughs> but you know, I just, I, I, and after that, you know, and, and renting movies, bringing them home, it might seem a little weird, especially to a modern audience, like being able to watch a movie at home, like go to a store, pick it out, 
and then have a player and watch it special for like birthday or something going on, and, you know, as a rainy weekend or something. And having those, having access to those, I remember renting Enter the Ninja. I remember, you know, some of those old, you know, crappy canon action. Well, they're not crappy as far as I'm concerned, but, you know, they're not high budget action movies. Um, and watching them on CED, which was a predecessor to VHS, it was actually like a record. Uh, and it had, uh, like it was, it was, it was vinyl and, and you could, you had to flip the movie halfway through in order to be able to watch it. But that made it such a special experience for me. And so those movies too, because you rented them because they were special, I would watch them more than once often when we, you know, and so then you start asking questions of, well, how did they do that? You know, how did they do those stunts? You know, or the, how much of it's the guy, how much of it's like an effect, how much, you know, when the, they see the explosions, how do they do that? And, you know, that very much pulling things apart, trying to figure out how they made that happen and, and made it up on the screen. Right. So, um, and then after that, it was going to the library and finding everything I could possibly find about how movies are made and all that kind of stuff. So those are, I think that the pivotal things for me that made me want to continue to explore stories, um, growing up, you know, when we did finally get a VCR, I had friends with VCRs. We spent, I spent every Friday afternoon, after school with my buddies going to the video store and, you know, trolling the shelves, seeing what we could find. Sometimes we'd find intentionally poor, like Kung Fu movies that are poorly dubbed. Sometimes we'd, you know, whatever we felt like. So, yeah. So that's the, the creativity for me was just more of an insatiable consuming of it at first. Um, and then trying to figure out my own stories after that. So at what point did you start trying to figure out your own stories. Like wh when did the, the yeah. creativity start flowing out in a, in a concrete way? Um, so I have in, in 1984, I was diagnosed with a degenerative neuromuscular disorder called CMT, Charcot-Marie tooth type one, a, um, at the time, you know, when you're a kid, you don't really understand what that means, but I did understand very clearly that physically, I was not going to be very adept. I was not going to be an athlete, um, you know. Uh, and so early on, it was impressed upon me by doctors. I get not on purpose, I don't think. But what I took from it is if my body is going to possibly fail me, I need my mind to be sharp. So. I started, you know, I, I'd already enjoyed playing chess, but I started doing it more. I played crib with my dad on a regular basis. Um, but also too, like I had a little, uh, uh, I don't know what kind it was like a Fuji camera, like a, you know, just a, it had a built in flash. And, and so what I started doing, my first storytelling was using my GI Joe figures or whatever figures I had around the house. And I'd get like a roll of film or like a roll of 24, 36 shots and then I, in our front yard, we had a big stump that was kind of like, it was, must've been a massive tree, but it was cut down to a stump and I would do like photo plays essentially. And then you could buy stickers that were word balloons. And so I would, I would get like a photo album and then take the photos, kind of plan out the story. And then, uh, you know, and it would be GI Joe versus Cobra, but you know, the scenario would be, there would be a MacGuffin, right? We got to, you know, 
Um, at first I used the stuff from the show, like the weather dominator, but then I started thinking, you know, my own weapons, you know, an ice weapon that could freeze, you know, capitals and things like that. And, and then I would, so I'd take the pictures, get them developed, put them in a, in a photo book and then put stickers on and, and <laughs> the trying to write in a very small space and a photo balloon didn't work very well, but it, it <laughs> that's, that's kind of the first storytelling I used to do. Um, and then, yeah, I remember in grade one, I worked with another student who was older to make the little red hen in space. And that was probably my first story was was telling the story of the little red hen in space. So it was essentially the same story as the little red hen, but uh, less gravity was really <laughs> the only difference. <laughs> so, yeah, so that's that's kind of the early sparks of creativity. Um, yeah, in terms of writing things down, I didn't really start doing that till high school when I would write the occasional poem. And I, obviously in high school too, the workload goes up. So a lot of my, you know, again, with the CMT, having the dexterity to write by hand for long periods of time was often devoted to my schoolwork. I really couldn't do a lot beyond that, but it doesn't mean I didn't stop thinking and imagining stories that became seeds of things that came later, you know? So, so, so the easy one with creativity is we're looking at, at storytelling and we do talk a lot about storytelling. Mm -hmm. Were there other outlets? Like, did you act? Did you sing? Did you, you know, what else did you do growing up? <laughs> I'm not an actor. Um, I suck at it. I, I I'm terrible. I have too much, presence of mind in terms of not not that actors are brainless it's more i'm thinking about all the aspects of what's going on so that if i'm on camera i just get i psych myself out so i did i appeared in oliver as a cop for one line it was a school production of oliver um i did do some singing um singing's part of like my dad sings and then and i have always sung. I was in choirs and things like that. I was in plays for Sunday school and stuff like that. Things, nothing, you know, major earth shattering. Um, probably the best times that I remember storytelling or was when I was a camp counselor. So this is a little bit later in life, but as a camp counselor, I was a storyteller at campfire time. And so, um, you know, there was sort of a set of stories um, or skits, you know, counselors would, would, uh, you know, in groups of four or five, we, you know, we sort of had a repertoire of skits that we'd learn over the course of the summer, got pretty good at them by the end. They were more comedic. So it wasn't to me the same as like acting for an audience. It was more, you know, you're, you're putting yourself out there in a funnier, exaggerated way. So that was okay. Um, and so telling those stories at the campfire really honed my desire to, you know, connect with an audience wanting you know, in, in this case, the kids to respond well to it and, and to, you know, so to try and be funny as well. Um, and I, I like, you know, being witty if I can be growing up with heavy doses of British comedy does that to one. So, you know, I uh, tried to inject as much sort of non sequitur hilarity as I could into those things. And I got lots of good feedback for it. That's one of the things that really pushed me along creatively was people saying that they appreciated the way I told stories and the humor that I included in them. Um, and so, you know, when I'm 
looking at my, I guess, my the history of my creativity, it went from kind of just imagining to then starting to express more deliberately through actual storytelling as opposed to doing it through singing or through like acting in plays or things like that when opportunities rose for me to to um, share a story, then I would do that. Um, and one of my major influences was my grandfather, my mom's dad. He was one of my best friends growing up. He passed away in 1996. But uh, when I was growing up, you know, I went to his house, uh, my grandma and grandpa's house on weekends sometimes and stayed there for the weekend. And, and uh, like my grandpa was a hilarious storyteller. Like he just had, he grew up on a farm in Saskatchewan and had all these, you know, he, and he was a bit of a mischievous guy. Right. So he had all of these like hilarious stories and his way of telling the story and sort of letting it lead you, you know, you're kind of going, Oh man, I kind of see where this is going, but you know, it, it would also, it would always kind of have a little bit of a twist to it because it's real life, right? Stories never go the way you expect them to. Um, and then an, another influence is, is, uh, cool as it is, is that it's my, my brother, Sean, who has Down syndrome and he's two years younger. I, we would often sit and read together and then I would tell him a story sometimes and, and we would share in that. And he, he loves to tell stories as well and write stories down. And so, you know, he and I have always had that relationship. His, you know, uh, he has such a cool mind um, and he tends to think very abstractly. So he's occasionally hard to understand, but he's a focus is always on emotional impact and, and he's and focusing on happiness and joy and love. And that always really, influenced me as well so 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 i know that you know you came to bible school after high school that's where we met mm -hmm. and yep. you did a whole bunch of schooling and <laughs> lots Too of schooling, schooling yeah. but anyway and eventually you became a pastor and yep so for you was there a part of that that was that creativity that storytelling like you know i i when i look at a pastor i see that as part of you know that that weekly sermon is not necessarily telling a story but you know to be fair that's what you know jesus did is he told stories to get points <laughs> across right you know so i guess a pastor is kind of a storyteller um was that a connection for you that you made or was that just a a nice happenstance that worked out good. I mean, it, it right up until I, I stepped away from ministry, it was always my favorite part was the preaching. I loved preaching, loved it. And, um, you know, for me going, I, I actually fought becoming a pastor for a long time. Um, and the reason I became one definitely was part of the storytelling. But what I believe about storytelling is that it's, I'm, I'm trying to connect with people and I'm a person and the people that I served were people. And that's what was always my focus. I was never looking to, um, never looking to be over anyone in life ever. Like that was never my perspective. I didn't ever want to do that. And so becoming a pastor for me, I always saw it as a servant role. And then my role as a, as a pastor, um, and, and that storytelling component was then trying to make people connect with scriptures emotionally, but also with each other emotionally. Um, 
you know, <laughs> you don't have to spend much time in a church to realize that there are those of us who really do care and are compassionate about others. And there are those of us who really seek power over others. And you can really tell very quickly who those people are. Um, for me, my desire was always to make faith accessible to everyone to not, yes, we, you know, in the tradition I'm from, I'm, you know, you and I are Lutheran and the tradition, that tradition is very academic. And so trying to bring across concepts that are very complicated theologically in a way that made sense to people, it's a lot of, it was a lot of work on my part to do that, but I loved doing that. I loved seeing lights go on. I loved trying to emphasize the fact that, you know, emphasize compassion and empathy um, which is present, you know, in, in the gospels present in the Bible, you know, we always hear about the, the angriness of Christians. And yet that's not the faith that, that I grew up in. Um, and I had a pastor that genuinely was caring and compassionate. I spent a lot of time in the hospital and he visited me. Uh, I felt loved and appreciated and cared for and becoming a pastor. And, and in terms of the way that I was and the stories that I told, I wanted people to know that I was someone that they could go to um, be heard and be cared for that in telling the stories that I told, it conveyed that I wanted to hear theirs and hear their stories um, real or you know, if they had ideas for stuff, that's great. But if they were hurting, I wanted to know that I wanted them to know that I was there for them um, and that I was always going to listen with an open heart. And that's the part of storytelling that I love is the is the idea of I mean, I've always liked like mythologies and morality tales, I guess you could say. Right. You know, things like Aesop's fables or or, or things like that that kind of have. Uh, a moral tale to them. And, you know, there is some of that obviously in the Bible, but there's also, you know, uh, God loving his people, God wanting his people to be close to him, wanting to have them nearby. And that's something that I always wanted people to know. I never wanted anyone to leave thinking that God was mad at them. Um, because I don't think God spends a lot of time being mad at people, to be honest. So, so, so you're making this really beautiful point, and I got stuck on the, on the, uh, you know, so I was in the hospital, and he came to visit me, and I was expecting you to say, and I was hungry, and he fed me, and I was naked. When were you <laughs> naked? What, what is he? <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> there's times where I, I, I've been naked, but they're not really anything I want to share. Um, <laughs> Certainly not with the, your pastor. Most of them are embarrassing. Most of them are embarrassing. But yeah. Well, to be fair, I also got visited by the Vancouver Canucks in the hospital, but it's just the pastor's the one I remember. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. I To me, storytelling is a way to emotionally connect hearts and that's really important to me, um, which is funny because a lot of the the stories, I mean, you know this, a lot of the story ideas that I have are sort of sci-fi focused or, or, or even um, horror or uh, suspense focused, right? Um, 
And I think that's more lately in my, like certainly within the last decade, the concept that I've really been wrestling with as a storyteller is truth and how the truth is often scarier. You know, people are always like, Oh, Stephen King, his stuff is terrifying. Part of the reason if you actually read and it drives me crazy when people are like, well, I've never read Stephen King. He's too scary. If you've never read Stephen King, you don't know why he's scary. That's the thing is that he writes people that are so three dimensional that you end up caring about them. And so then when bad things happen to them or they get themselves in bad pickles, sometimes, yes, they deserve it. But you feel for them. That's what that's where the terror comes from for him is for for his writing is the real the truth of what he's saying and i love that and i resonate with that and i want to include that in my writing and so yeah um and i mean uh, stories often for me take a long time to percolate but right now my focus is on telling stories that are thoughtful truthful philosophical um so not necessarily a defined ending, but something a little more, you know, that keeps you chewing on it after you're finished it sort of thing. So, so, so you got into ministry, um, you know, and really I could spend a lot of time asking all kinds of questions that I've always wondered about that, but kind of wanted to move forward. So you reached a point where your CMT and your ministry just really couldn't coexist anymore that no um yeah so a lot of (laughs) people always joke the pastors only work on sundays but the reality is is that um at least for me (laughs) i didn't work just sundays um i visited people in their homes i worked as a chaplain in a seniors facility i counseled people who are dying i counseled people who are troubled i you know, spent a lot of time working on my sermons and, and that, and, um, you know, physically my body's been declining. I mean, my whole life, it's sort of like, it's what progressive is. It's just, you don't always see it. It's kind of a slow burn. Um, and I really hit a wall. It's actually in a couple of days, it'll be three years since I stepped away, uh, because my body just couldn't handle it anymore. I was exhausted, like permanently just exhausted. Um, my day off, I was, recovering it was not a day off a day of replenishing it was a day of recovering um and yeah so stepping away was hard it wasn't really something i wanted to do but it was something i needed to do and but then it also left me in a bit of a quandary as then you know how do i and i i have to clarify like how do i live my life from this point forward because a lot of friends, a lot of people were like, so what are you going to do now? Which got me really thinking about how much we focus on being defined by what we do. And when I look at my CMT, I'm finding it now hard to know. It feels a bit like a minefield. Like if I, if I undertake this task and I start doing it, am I going to be able to do it for a while or am I going to be able to do it for a month and then I'll lose the capacity to be able to, to function that way. So for example, typing is, is one that I'm kind of struggling with right now. I can do a little bit, but my hands get really sore. Um, and like, you know, speech to text is proven challenging for me. I just have to learn how to do it, but it's, you know, I'm an old dog now. There's, 
you know, <laughs> there's a reluctance to learn new tricks when you've been telling stories one way um, your whole life. So, yeah. So when I stepped away, um, <laughs> it's probably going to sound ludicrous to say this, but thankfully COVID came along um, in, in this perspective anyway. And, you know, I stepped away in November 2019 and then March of 2020 is when things really kind of the feces hit the rotary oscillator, as it were. And, um, you know, my, my kids were home full time. So I became a teacher to my son and my daughter was able to be largely independent at that time, but my son really needed a lot of help. And that was a wonderful experience, but it kind of allowed me to have a bit of a decompression time where I was occupied with being there for my kids and for my wife. And, um, so it was, it's only been in the last year where I've really been trying to, I guess, sort myself out is, you know. So yeah, that's. So, at some point, the outer twilight was born, and <laughs> yeah, talk about that. Uh, so, I'd had the idea for a website for actually a few years, like probably starting like while I was still working. I I thought of something in like I think it was twenty seventeen or twenty eighteen, and I had a, uh. I actually had a website for a year, but didn't do anything with it. Like it just sat dormant. I didn't even sort of like, I didn't publish it anywhere. I didn't announce it to, to anybody. And then it just, the time, I just didn't have the time and I was getting more exhausted. So that it just fell by the wayside basically. So then when I stepped away from work, um, it was around then that I was like, I want to, and I actually started the outer twilight probably I have to look, but I think it was December of 2019. And was all like gung ho. I'm going to write, you know, not really registering the grief I was dealing with yet. Um, I knew it was coming, but I, I wanted to have something to do. So, so I did that. And, and so I started, you know, the outer twilight and then, you know, March happened and my focus got torn away from the website. Um, and so then the idea though, was basically born out of like, you know, I believe that stories are meant to be read. Um, and there is a strange component of it to me where it's like, you know, uh, there, there's an ego aspect for me that I wrestle with where it's like, you know, are my stories worth reading or hearing? Right. And, and, um, I think they, they are, uh, and you know, the, the inspiration for the outer twilight, the name of it is a, you know, a kind of a portmanteau of the outer limits and the twilight zone, because those were two big influences, um, growing up that in reruns, I got to see the, you know, a lot of those episodes. I love Rod Serling. I love his style of writing. Uh, the outer limits had some really cool episodes. Um, but twilight zone particularly just had some really, I mean, even this to this day, there's still episodes that are so poignant. Um, and so I wanted to use that as my inspiration and then, you know, have it be a place to write fiction, nonfiction and memoir. Um, the memoir came about because that was where my heart was. I wanted to take a look back at my life and where I'd gotten, you know, when you step away from your career and your life is fundamentally changing, it tends to make you introspective. And so I wanted to kind of share some of the things I've learned in being counseled, like going to counseling, you know, dealing with, uh, but there was, uh, you know, I had a bit of an anger management issue uh, just because like growing up, there was a, a lot to be angry about. Um, 
for me, you know, struggling. I spend a lot of time in hospital, a lot of time in pain, um, builds up a lot of anger. And so in the counseling that I did, I learned a lot about integrity and honesty and with myself and vulnerability as well was a big one. And so I wanted a place to put those things out there because I also know I'm not the only one, you know, when you serve people, you realize everybody's hurting, everybody needs encouragement. And if that could be something I could provide, then I'd like to do that. So, so that's kind of where the idea came from. And then, um, over the course of the pandemic, coincidentally, you know, you, you, a lot of us started reaching out to friends and seeing how they were doing. And I reached out to you, um, and you and I had always talked about, you know, so our, our mutual love of storytelling, both in, in the stuff we take in as well as wanting to put ideas out. And it just, I felt like, you know, it was kind of, it's hard to do something like the outer twilight on your own. And so having a partner to me was the best idea. And, and the fact that it was you, um, you know, just sort of sweeten the deal in the sense that I knew, you know, we're like-minded in terms of um, our passion for stories, but also our passion for people too. Um, and we're at a point in life where we are getting older <laughs> and, you know, some guys buy a sports car. Some guys leave their wives for a younger model. We collaborate on a website and try to push each other to have something special in this part of our lives. And I, I'm fairly happy with that choice. <laughs> I mean, a, a fancy car would be nice, but, you know. Well, so when I look at that, time and I don't remember what the exact timeline was but I know like we had started kind of reconnecting on a more regular basis and you had mentioned that you had the website and and I'd looked at that and you know and, I, and I'm sure we'll get we'll get into this next time about where I was coming from but I just remember talking to you and you saying how like, like you were struggling with, you know, what, what's next. And, you know, and you had these ideas and it's always, and there's always this disconnect. And, and I think this is where we're very, very similar is that there's this, there's this disconnect between um, intention and action. And I know that's something that has been huge for me. And, and I think, yeah, and and you hit it right on the head. It was that that idea of okay, well, you know, I can rationalize to myself, but you know, if I'm working with somebody, I think that'll help to spur us both on and to encourage each other and that that collaboration. Not that we were at that point, we weren't working together on the stuff that we we're working on, but the fact that we were talking to one another. And working on stuff independently helped to to move us forward. And I know for me, it was a big help to be able to start moving forward and start um, actually getting some things written as opposed to just swirling around inside my head. Um, so yeah, so we yeah, so we started doing that and. 
And then we got to the point of, I really, really wanted to do a, a podcast. Always wanted to do a podcast. And I couldn't imagine anyone else that would be better to do a podcast with because, well, frankly, um, you know film, you know comic books, you know stories and stuff like that. Um, you're the expert and I'm, you know, the anchor, whether that's, you know, keeping us steadfast yeah, or, no, or pulling totally. us yeah. down. But uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, I think the anchor is a good, you know, it's a, an important role. Um, you know, I can talk and talk and talk as you've probably figured out if you've listened to this podcast for any amount of time, but, um, yeah, I mean, and I am enthusiastic about the things that I talk about. That's the problem is I get really excited. And so then I go on and on, but, uh, yeah, no, that having that anchor of bringing me back so that we can actually get to important stuff is important is, is good. Right. And I, I, I think one of the things I just remembered is that like, for, and I know it was a challenge for you. At first, I don't know if it still is. I guess we can talk about that more next week. But the whole vulnerability component of The Outer Twilight in that I've been very fascinated and encouraged by being more emotionally available to myself and my family through my willingness to write and about myself and my struggles and the things that I've experienced when I've shared it online with friends and with, you know, putting it out there to the public it's very encouraging to hear people say like, it's amazing, you know, how you share. And this is not blowing my own horn. This is the fact that it, it surprises me as much as anybody else. I think that it's kind of like, you know, we appreciate what you're doing. It helps me to think things through. It helps me to be vulnerable. I love hearing that. And that's something that I always want to push myself to be is more vulnerable, more willing to, share of myself and, and help people feel like they're not alone. And I also think in a timely way that that's kind of what we need right now. Um, you know, it feels like as a society right now, we're in a trajectory of being like, we're all sort of fiercely alone and individualistic, even though we may be like-minded. Um, it's more like a like-minded group of individuals as opposed to, you know, unified under, communication, um, being willing to share where you're at emotionally, being able to share what you're hurting, you know, um, it's sort of like everybody's angry in the same direction is, is often what we see happening publicly. Um, and so that, that vulnerability component is something I really like pushing. And I know for you, it was more challenging just because you hadn't done it before. I mean, you've come across as a more, as a vulnerable person to me, you know, ever since I've known you, but that's because we're friends, right? Um, and it, it's it's a totally different ball game than when you start putting yourself out into the world and you're kind of putting yourself in in the hands of strangers, so to speak, and hoping they don't crush you, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which is can be really terrifying, you know, so but or or even more so that they don't just walk away. Um, right. I think for me, vulnerability, I'll, I'll take somebody coming at me over somebody's else's apathy. Um, yeah. I find that harder to, to deal with, but, but that's me. Um, so, so the things that you're working on, so obviously we're starting season two of the podcast. We have, I know that you're, we've got the outer twilight 10 list, the top, top 10. 10. Yeah. Um, 
what else are you working on? So starting within the next week or two, I'm going to have taught thoughts, which will be a, like a 10 or 15 minute, uh, I don't know, vlog, I guess would be the most accurate, uh, pretty informal. Um, but you know, I'm, the first one's going to explain CMT, for example, and then I'm going to talk about, I, I want to inject a fair bit of humor into that. Um, you know, talking about the dumb things people say to you when you're disabled, uh, you know, things like that. Um, but a variety of topics, kind of whatever's on my heart at the time, I think is kind of what I'm shooting for. Um, you know, varying between humor and more serious stuff, looking at the nature and notion of truth and, and some of that philosophical stuff. Um, you know, we talked about the fact that I was a pastor for, you know, 15 years and, part of what I have needed to do in stepping away and figuring out who I am now as a private person instead of a public person is I'm staying away largely from theological stuff and, and focusing a lot more on, you know, intellectual philosophical, uh, uh, ethical type stuff. Um, mostly cause it's different subject matter. Um, and I want my faith to be private for now. Um, and probably for, you know, <laughs> the foreseeable future. <laughs> um, and, and yeah, cause when you, when you live your life publicly that way and it's, it's firmly attached to your faith, it's, it's, it's a lot, it's a burden. It's, you know, and it was a struggle for 15 years to try and keep that balance. And I'm really treasuring the fact that I don't have to do that anymore. Um, and I don't know if I don't really give a crap if anybody thinks that's weird or not to me, it's just what I need to do. Um, and so, and then, you know, my son and I have, have thought of a, uh, a video series we want to do. It's just a little bit more work. It's related with, you know, retro video games and stuff. And he's 10 and I'm 47. And I think it's just such a neat intergenerational opportunity that I really want to try it, but it's going to, just going to be a lot of work. So I'm not sure when that's coming. The top thoughts will be pretty quick, but, um, you know, and part of it for me is figuring out the workload of it. Um, managing my energy levels through this whole thing has been a challenge, which is why, you know, if you're looking for the outer twilight to be something where things are timely, you know, I mean, the top thoughts will be pretty much every week and the, the top 10 will be every week too. But, um, you know, beyond that, it's going to kind of be when it's ready really is the, the mentality I have to take while well, the podcast as well, I guess, but there's only so many things I can do in a week and, you know, as I said, things progress. So I don't put pressure on myself to have to get things done. Um, I'm not in this to become famous or I'm not in this to become uh, special. I'm in this to be creative and I'm in this to express myself and that's going to happen in the time that it happens. It's not going to happen according to anybody else's schedule, but my own. Right. Well, <laughs> and yours to a degree <laughs> where those things overlap, but <laughs> you can't tell me what to do, Mike. Um, but you know what I mean? Like it, yeah. it's, it's just, yeah, it, it's going to be as I can make it happen. Um, you know, like I can't work full time. I can't even, I can barely do half time. I think, yeah, it's a, it's a slog. Um, the nice thing is, is that I've been teaching myself, you know, how to use, I, I've always used video editing software since I was, you know, since computers had them, um, same with audio stuff, but some of the modern stuff is a little more convenient, but also a lot more technical. So I've been teaching myself that stuff. 
as I learn it, it becomes easier and I can do more things quickly. So, you know, um, yeah, but I, right now I'm trying to shoot for quality over quantity. So, so my last question, okay, now I got two questions left. So okay. my penultimate question for you is this. <laughs> I love that word. What? So we talked a little bit about the future in that. Is there a bucket list item as it relates to what we've been talking about that exists for you? Um, yeah, I have a novel that I've, <laughs> the whole thing is written in my head. It's getting it down on paper. Um, but the reflections ink of the first chapter that's on the website, I'd love to finish that. Um, and it's not like I, I don't want to, I absolutely want to, I mean, it's sort of that whole speech to text thing. I mean, it's a lot of words, right? It's a lot of writing. It's a lot of stuff to get out of my brain and onto page, but that would be a real dream for me is to even get one novel done um and hopefully published that would be the dream would be to get published uh in terms of bucket list i think you know um us working together on a podcast learning the skill of being able to do this is what's really valuable to me um and i I know to you as well um being voices that people respect being voices that aren't out there to be sensationalistic, but are out there to be rational in terms of creativity and storytelling. A lot of the voices that I hear about creativity now are politicized. They're often irrational or angry in one direction or the other. Um, A lot of, I feel like, you know, in a lot of ways, creativity is kind of under attack. And in the sense that we, are we don't we're not willing to put the thought into what it takes to be really positively creative um people want to tear down because destruction is a lot easier than than construction right um and i want to be a voice i want us to be able to be a voice for that and that's what i want to see in this season for us is to to put our creative minds towards rational positive constructive you know criticism uh thought ethic you know like those kinds of things to help people grow in their understanding of creativity and storytelling um and i guess i'd be lying if you know the the big bucket list thing is that like cmt doesn't shorten life but it sure makes you think about mortality a lot and (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I I want, I guess, to have a legacy, even if it's just for my kids, like, or my grandkids, you know, or great grandkids. If Even if it's just that my voice and those stories, like the gr- stories my grandpa told me, you know, that somewhere when I'm somebody's grandpa or if I'm somebody's, if I'm blessed enough to be someone's grandpa, that they know my stories too. And they can hear them and laugh at them and boy, you know, boy, grandpa was a crazy guy, you know, um, or he had some funny things happen to him. And, and I'd love that more than anything. Be great if the world heard my stories, but as far as I'm concerned, my kids are the only ones that I really care about hearing them. So what I'm hearing you saying is, is 
you want your kids to be able to take their kids to the Andrew James Craig Museum of Broadcasting and uh, to be able to experience the full <laughs> Andrew James Craig experience. <laughs> Yeah, except it's not going to be a museum like, you know, these impressive, you know, World's Fair museums like they have in Chicago that have been there for 150 years. It'll be some like local small town Alberta museum that was basically like it was a former like food truck. Yes, yeah, food truck park behind the Tim Hortons where you can go and listen to the legacy of Andrew James Craig. Exactly. And there's like a little sign hanging off the corner of, you know, the AJ Craig Museum around back. Not even it'll be in like 12 point font with you know, free admission. You know, we'll pay you to come to the museum. But, Open but yeah. if not doing deliveries. Um <laughs> Exactly. So my last question is this, and you might need a moment to think about this, but looking back at season one and of the podcast of, of the videos that we've done of the, the writings that you've posted and stuff like that, is there one single thing that stands out to you that you're most proud of um whether it's something that you learned something that you produced um uh, a feedback that you received uh an interaction that you had whatever it is is there something from you know what we've done what you've done over the past few months past year that stands out for you I think for me, the stuff I'm the most proud of is the nonfiction stuff I've done on uh, the website, um, talking about like truth, you know, concepts like truth and gratitude. And well, I haven't written the gratitude one yet, but, but you know, being hopeful um, and and that kind of stuff. I feel like when I write those things down, it's very satisfying for me. I feel very accomplished when I get that stuff out because. I feel like they're the product of, you know, hours and hours of reflection and hours and hours of thought. Um, and so I, I'm really proud of those things. Um, and when I look at our, you know, the stuff we've done together, what I'm proud of is, is that, you know, we're, our friendship is, is the first ingredient in all of this stuff. And, I want that to continue to be the, the underpinnings of it all, because that's what matters is, is our friendship. And that, you know, like when we're sharing these creative ideas and things, and even in the first season, season, even though it was a kind of a steep learning curve, trying to figure all this out, there's the kind of craziness of, you know, doing something brand new that, you know, we've heard other people do and we're taking a crack at it to see how it goes. And it wasn't a total disaster. Um, it was awesome. You know, it was fun to get together. It's, it's made us, you know, communicate on a regular basis. And, and to me, that's the key ingredient in this whole thing is, is our relationship as friends. And, and I'm proud of that, that it's not about, I, I don't perceive that we'll ever become about, you know, infighting and, you know, arguments over direction and creativity. We've known each other long enough that we respect one another. And we always will. And so, you know, um, that is, you know, I, I feel like that's the, 
thing I'm really proud of too. Um, you know, I, I hope people listen to this, but at the end of the day, if nobody does, it's a great record of our friendship. So. Well said. I'm going to have to Thank come you. up with something really good if you ask that question next week. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's all right. I, yeah. Yeah, my favorite part <laughs> was when, when working with Andrew, it's just been such a treat. <laughs> oh, no, that's not true. No. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I think we can wrap that up there. I think there's well, there's a thousand yep. other things that uh, would love to do and talk about, and well, frankly, but that's what future episodes are for. Yeah. And frankly, we will. Um, it's just, yeah. <laughs> it just won't be in this episode. So, um, no, it was good. Thank you for sharing that, Andrew, and thank you for kicking off season two for us. And fun. It's been a good conversation. Yeah. Well, and here's to here's to future episodes and more seasons to come. Thank you for listening to us, and thank you for for being a part of this experiment called the Outer Twilight. Perfect. Yeah. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you, Mike. Yeah.